do we heal these big rifts in our systems? I went in with my eyes wide open, ready to learn and listen. There's no co-designing without co-deciding. All of these difficult questions are polarities, two options where choosing one or the other is always a mistake. There is more movement than I think people can see. Our elders enable us to see further. Wherever we are in an organisation, we do have the power to contribute to some change. Kia ora and welcome to episode 64. I've got goosebumps from listening to our new introduction, which features some of the guests on the show. And the new introduction is there to mark a new chapter for the podcast. As of last week, I have established my own business called The Learning Lab, and I am both very excited and very nervous. What I hope to do with The Learning Lab is focus on growing your capability and capacity to serve community needs. I will still be part of the Business Lab team. You can still turn to us when you need a facilitation team for an important engagement project. And then with the Learning Lab, I'm going to be doubling down my energy on the training and coaching work that we've been developing in the last couple of years. We've got established programs, we've got Virtually Productive, which is helping you facilitate virtual meetings that make change outside the meeting room. There's Reframe, helping you navigate the ups and downs of influencing systems change. And I'm also going to be moving into two areas which... I've done a lot of, but I haven't kind of formalized properly. One will be around facilitation foundations, sharing the secrets of successful facilitation, and a program around co-design, helping you to co-design authentically and avoid some of the beginner traps that can happen. One of the great things about this partnership between Business Lab and The Learning Lab is we get to carry on with this podcast. And just to make sure I knew that was the right decision, I got an email out of the blue from somebody called Tanya Poynton, who works at Seeds Charitable Trust in Waikato. And Tanya said, Kia ora Paul, I've been blown away by your incredible podcast. I'm just binging on it and I can't seem to get enough. Tanya Thank you, that message was exactly what I needed at the exact moment that I needed it. So we're going to carry on with the podcast, maybe reducing the frequency a little bit. And for me, there's a couple of things that I really hope to explore over the coming 12 to 18 months. One is really around cultural intelligence, helping you to better understand some different cultural perspectives, how they relate to your own, and therefore how you can work better with communities. And I'm also hoping to continue exploring this year the practice of deliberative democracy. There are bright sparks of that going on in New Zealand at the moment, and I want to shine a light on those and build that up as a stronger movement here in Aotearoa. And of course we'll continue on with stories of biculturalism and action, you know, different engagement methods. It's all going to be there. I'm excited. We've got some amazing guests coming up. So let's move on to today's guest. Goodness me, I'm chatting far too much today. Um, <clears throat> I first came across today's guest through an article called if you can't engage your brown staff, you'll never engage their people. He's a partner with PwC, one of the big consulting firms, who, like all big consulting firms at the moment, are under the microscope with people asking questions about government spend on consultants. And personally, I think a lot of people have 
assumptions about what those firms are like, sometimes based on truth, sometimes on rumor. Well, you can hear some truth from Ivan today. He's very upfront about his experiences and we cover all sorts of stuff. Like we go back to his upbringing and what it was like being a brown person in a mainly white town, which was Nelson, where I currently live. One of the original reasons for inviting Ivan onto the show was he is the chairperson of the Pacific Data Sovereignty Network. And it was a reflection of how much fun we were having talking that we only got to that at the very end of this interview. So do listen to the end because Ivan and the Pacific Data Sovereignty Network have some important messages for you about using, interpreting, guarding data and information about Pacific peoples living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And a theme that you'll hear us coming back to in this show is you've got to have courage in conviction. I'll let him explain more about what that means. So please welcome to the show, Ivan Tava. Kia ora, Ivan. Haere mai ki te podcast. Big warm welcome to you. It's so good to have you here joining me on the show. Thank you, Ben. It's an honor to be here to be asked to do this and I'm lucky enough to have had a good experience and hopefully help some of the listeners and add some value to their lives. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know a bit about you, Ivan, and, and your upbringing and shared connections. So born in, born in Papua New Guinea, but my last name Tava is, is a Samoan name. It used to be Tava Isi. They dropped the Isi and just rolled with Tava. I was born in Papua New Guinea, but I came over to New Zealand when I was two with my mum and settled in Nelson, of all places. Why Nelson? And I don't know, because my mum, my stepfather, she connected with him and he's from Nelson, we're his family. Uh, and I settled in Richmond, white middle-class Richmond. And I was definitely a black spot, a white piece of paper, man. I, you know, I could barely speak English, hopefully it's changed now. And then grew up in Nelson and I mean, I love Nelson. I struggled to leave there 10 years ago, moved up to Wellington. But it's a great place to grow up, man. And, you know, and I've met lifelong friends there who are still are my friends to this day that I went to school with. It's a Wyoming College, Coward Public School. We had many brown faces in Nelson. I didn't know my father, but I had a mum, two sisters, and, and a lot of people that were father figures in my life. And I, I was terrible at school, not because, I, you know, I think I was intelligent and smart enough, but I decided that possibly that it was much too fun to be connected and have relationships and focus on being the best that I could. And, you know, some of the funny things I always think of is like, I wasn't very good at school. I was probably a bit lazy to be honest, to focus on, yeah, you know, things that were extracurricular and you got a color and a bar on your blazer at school and I right. had seven, I had yeah. seven of those things because I was into drama and yes. agriculture and touch and rugby and basketball and all those sort of things like that, which I loved, right? But school academics wasn't really my thing, right? Particularly at that age. And I was lucky enough that I met at a very young age, a whole lot of Māori whānau, not many right. brown faces in Nelson. So the ones that were there, you all knew each other, you all grew yeah. up together. And I got really connected to the Māori culture, Marais and Kapahaka and those mm -hmm. things. And I was lucky enough to be em embraced by them and I loved it and grew up in that space and it had given me a gift around mm -hmm. te reo and tikanga Māori and a lens that it was familiar to me. So your whole immediate family part of that as well, or was that just an Ivan thing? It was just a bit of an Ivan thing because, you know, there's a gap between my sisters and me, I'm nine years old and the eldest of my youngest sister. 
this. And so the Māori families, man, there's some awesome Māori families in Nelson. For some reason, there's just like a whole group of Māori whānau that have settled in Nelson in mm-hmm. Richmond. Yeah. And they started their own kohanga, you know, fantastic lady named Pipart. You say Pipart's name and Nelson, everybody knows who you're talking about. And yes. they sort of started a couple of group in white middle class, Wyoming College, Women's Mediates, which the only college with a t- traditional Māori name is Wyoming College, right? And so it hooked me into that space. And I love performing and doing that sort of stuff, but it had grown on me and stuck with me. And the gifts that those people, particularly the AEB of the W who gave me, yeah. uh, is something that I honour today by making sure that I hold the mana of Te Ao Māori in that mm-hmm. space and what I've been taught in all of the work and even in my personal interactions. So, yeah, so came here in Nelson, uh, went to Wellington because, you know, that's why I sort of sound smart enough, but I was just lazy because mm-hmm. after college, I just got to screw around with another like, degree in social sciences and an MBA in MA and communications. It was always there. I just couldn't be stuffed. And I got those qualifications we really well sought after in government. So a lot of work for government. Well, we moved up to Wellington, a lot of national work in government. And, and can the, I jump in with a question there, Ivan? Why work for government? The thing that disenfranchised me when I left government was the fact that I went, man, I want to change the world. Got this gift and, you know, there's mentors that have taught me and said, man, your suit, it doesn't have any pockets when in a coffin, right? Which is, you can't take money with you. You can't mm-hmm. take your like this, but what will live on is your legacy, that you, the impact that you make on the world. So that, that's why we for social sciences. So actually how could I work in the social services sector? Then you know, I quickly learned after funding and all that sort of stuff, because I'm, I'm a fix it guy. Anytime I fix it, I'll fix it. And in my mind, I, you know, working in youth organizational, the probation office, stuff like that. And I was going, oh, actually we can really make changes in Wellington in policy. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. where I need to be. Right. And so I went there and then, and then worked for eight years in that space. And that, I suppose I've had a bit of a focus on courage of conviction. That's what I call it. You know, Māori and Pacific. People say my, my age, they're working through this leadership battle. So fundamentally the kohanga generation, right? The generation that's come through, that's gone through that space and, and they're adding real change is that I really like Republicans. And they always go, why? And I said, man, because they don't even care. They say that any time it a racist, they go, yep, we are. And we don't yeah. care. You know what? We're just going to commit to it and, and, and have courage of conviction. Hmm. And I've always said that, like, that's what we've got to have in the space is to go, well, actually, if I want to make this change, then I've got to have the courage of conviction. I've got to walk into spaces that I go, mm. I'm a little bit uncomfortable here. I don't know what mm. I'm talking about. Man, I'm going to have conviction about it. Mm. It's like this, it's that I do bring to this, that, you know, and it took me a while to understand the stuff that I thought that was not important is really important. Like T-Tau Tanga. So people talk about Langatira Tanga and Manaki Tanga and all that sort of stuff. I've heard of my mate, Asafai Tibble. I, I, I spent a lot of time with that guy. Yeah. You know, I hate his phone calls, you know, he called this because I was no, he's got an idea when he calls me and, you know, and yeah. And because of the way he is, they're usually dragged into that idea because, you know, it's usually a real mm, He's so damn but, um, enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, one of the things he talks about is Titi Tanga, right? It's getting him. Doing the porphyry and the commercial and the partnership and the cultural stuff and then going, well, actually, I'm just going to jump in the kitchen and start drying some dishes. You know, but what I found out is the stuff that I was really good at that I didn't think was important because it was probably systems and that facilitated that. Well, that's not so important. The fact that you can do that doesn't mean much. The higher I got into government or senior I got, I go, actually, it's 50-50. Those are the critical elements, right? The yeah. frameworks, you know, and I always think that's the positive of being a good translator, particularly for someone in my position is that, you know, Māori and Pākehā aren't so different as they think. They probably want the same things. The outcomes and the outputs are the same, 
but how they get there is really different. So when a vacuum cleaner salesman comes to the door, knocks on the door and says, hi, here I am. I'm just selling things. Do I need to take my shoes off before I come in? I want to sell you this thing. Let's talk about this for 10 minutes and then we'll see where we go from there. Well, it just takes three hours for Māori to do that, right? Where they come in and the karanga comes out. They say who they are and why they're here. They acknowledge they're dead before they walk. And the other karanga goes, hey, this is who we are. These are the rules of this place. Make sure you take your shoes off if you come in here. Then you have a discussion about, we might talk about the history that you've sort of come together. And it, it gets to a place that the same output and outcome. The journey though is different. And I think, you know, the fundamental difference between that is that, it, in my view, is humbly as non-Māori is that Māori are really focused in the process mm-hmm. as opposed to the goal. And the goal's important, but the focus is the process. Yeah. I always challenge people that I work with now in my current job. So I left government. I got a bit like, man, this isn't democracy. It's guys like me that are making decisions, you know, and I just got a bit disenfranchised to be honest. And then my mates from PwC, fantastic guy named Rob Fisher, who leads the tech. Māori from Ngāti Pro, mm. who grew up in Tiarawa, is really connected to Ōtaki Ngāti Daukawa. And is, you know, using the Tiamari lens. He's actually the lead for tech consulting at PwC, the largest consultancy mm-hmm. in New Zealand. And he gave me a call and asked me to come to PwC. And another guy named Lee Shepard, who is, you know, a um, beautiful man from Ngāpuhi and Pinui, and who leads the whole order practice, right. multi-million dollar practice within PwC. And they asked me to come and join them on their vision and their aspiration three years ago. And man, I bought into that and that's where I'm at at the moment. So a lot of things spent through two years in Wellington, Pōneke working with government, yeah. with the Human Centre Design Team and establishing the Manukura Māori team in Pōneke. And now I'm, I wanted to move back to the South Island, a bit closer yeah. to my mum. Yeah. And so, and now back in Autote, which I love, man. Yeah. I love the, yeah, I love the South Island. I'm a tried and true South Islander, I think. That <laughs> and so back here doing the same thing, really leading the consulting team here and leading the Manukura effort and to, to Waipranam. Still stay connected nationally, but that's my co I think conviction, I think there's a real, yeah, tell a lot of my clients, there's key messages I give to clients that I'm always happy to share. You know, the message is the messenger, right? hundred percent, you know, I'll say, or it doesn't matter what the message is, it's who the messenger is mm. and whether it's trusted, particularly with Māori Pacific mm. communities. And I'm a, I'm a vestal for your message because I'm trusted, right? And so that brand is really important to me about the trust that I have with Māori and Pacific communities. I think there's a real focus on government and its ability to connect with Māori. And I mm-hmm. think one of those things that I've written about this before, Paul, is that if you cannot connect with your Māori staff, then you will not connect with their communities or Māori ambassadors. So for, for people listening, Ivan, thank you for sharing your journey and all the steps to where you are today. And yeah, there's a couple of things I'd love to unpack a little bit in there. One is, you know, you talked about how helpful for you as a brown person growing up in Nelson, that connection into Te Ao Māori was. What's been your journey as a Pacific person and finding out about your own culture as well alongside that? Yeah, it was, it was something that I always had access to because my mother, right. she still speaks Tuaripi and Melanesian Pigeon when she's angry with me. My mum is the same with Afrikaans. The only Afrikaans <laughs> words I know are swear words <laughs> yeah. and you food related words. Yeah. You know, we're in trouble when she uses my full name and then speaks yes. my language. That's when I'm in trouble. So yeah. I've always had a um, connection back to that at home. Some of it. She right. Okay. About family. She comes from a family of 13. So, you know, that connection back home was, and man, it's become even better with social media because, you know, I could live with my full family across multiple countries, you know, so my connection back to the Pacific has always been strong with my mum, but who's, 
in the sort of beginnings of my, you know, up to teenage, teenager and, you know, my early twenties, there was, there was sort of no sort of organized, um, couple around that. There was, you know, we'd have Pacific church day, which is once every month that all the Pacific would come together for church and those things. And yes, too, in all those ways, religion was a good structure for that. And mm. it continues to be for Pacific communities. Mm. So yeah, that was a, that was the sort of connection I had back through my mum. And then in my early twenties, Pacific community trust was starting to grow life really right. in Nelson and, you know, and that connected with a structured basis mm. around my opportunity to add value to my community in the Pacific. And so, you know, and then, and so it really grew this focus inside of Melbourne, connecting with the Pacific and connecting with Papua New Guinea and Samoans and, you know, Tongans and Cook Islanders and, and learning about that. And so I've always had my community connection with the Pacific and it wasn't until I got into government that I started to make that a structural policy approach around my brand and my offering around, well, you know, actually mining the Pacific, that's the communities that I belong to. Mm-hmm. And that skill that I learned in secondary school around the relationships and partnership and connection and dealing, that's what I carried through to my professional life, particularly in <laughs> government, is around the trust that I do in that community and then and protecting that trust and then finding the right people to offer that pathway to yeah. and people that I trusted. Yeah. Can I ask right. in there, Ivan, because there's this tension for you there in there of, I've got this professional space that I'm in, but there's also who I am personally. And then sometimes your job starts to ask things of your personal life, like, oh, hey, Ivan, can you connect us with your cousin or your auntie and that community that you're hanging out with in the weekend? How do you manage that tension? In my early career, I didn't do well. <laughs> because, you know, sort of, yeah, you're learning, right? But right, you just way, go, yes, oh yeah, of course, yep. Yeah, we can do that. I can do the coat yeah. here. I can do that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that sort of stuff. Like that. Which is cool, right? Because, you know, you're young, you're just trying to be cool. But it, as I've grown in this space, I've realized that, and I can only do this because I've got to a senior position in a lot of my jobs now. And so I mm. can challenge this. And so my challenge is that they have to reframe how they view Māori Pacific people. Yeah. I think I've written about this before to say that. So I think work-life balance is a, is a misnomer for Māori Pacific. That's my personal yeah. opinion. Is a misnomer. People, when you hire a Māori Pacific person, right, the same people, particularly at senior positions, so I'm sort of talking from my point of view here, it might be different for junior positions, but for senior positions, Māori Pacific people, you, you don't hire them because, because they've got the same qualifications as everybody else, right? It's because of their unique connection with their community, right? And so when someone tells me, oh, you've got to maintain work-life balance, well, I'm saying, well, no, because the same people that I'm talking with and dealing with around contracts or pieces of work or strategy or vision or whatever, well, they're the same people that I go and have a cup of tea with on a Saturday, mm-hmm. have a beer on a Thursday night or, or yeah. Sunday we're at another community event that we need to do voluntarily to do something. Mm-hmm. The same people that we work with are the same people that are part of our community. So work-life balance, you don't hire us because we can separate that world. You hire us because we can connect that world. So the way that I've always mitigated, and particularly now, although I give advice to large organizations as well as my own organization, is how you view Māori and Pacific people should be very different, right? Is that how do you acknowledge that particular Mātauranga, that knowledge base, and how do you do that as a genuine skill that earns you money or create or mm-hmm. earns you the right to work towards a strategy? Right? How do you acknowledge that? And how do you acknowledge that tactically, right? Not with, oh, we can have a morning tea every now and then, or mm. let's celebrate Māori Language Week or Tongan Language Week or Samoan Language Week. 
it's, well, how does it fit into your pricing? How does it fit into your duration framework, right? Mm -hmm. That actually those skills, skills that we leverage off. And so therefore those skills are the things that we will remunerate for, right? And brings, you know, and it goes both ways, right? Because then, so there's Paul McGregor, you know, I'm have the same qualifications in a Pākehā framework. Yes, mm-hmm. no, maybe. Do they have the same experience? Yes, no, maybe. And does Paul able to connect to my of a community this way? I haven't care. No? Okay, cool. And there's a different narration mm-hmm. framework. Yeah. And so, yeah, so how do I deal with that? Well, actually, it's from, it's systemically, right? It's to go, well, actually, how can we rethink the way that we work with my so I think there's lots of ways you can do that, right? To rethink, right? So everybody is talking to me about, I need more Māori and Pacific staff. Everybody's asking for that, right? <laughs> people, you know, I always say to them, like, it, well, they're all taken, right? That's the way it works. <laughs> I said, so what if you rethought your strategy to go, oh, I need a Māori to come here to do this piece of project work. What if you rethought that and went, how can I add value to lifting up the capability and capacity of Māori and Pacific people? How can I do that? And then if you rethought that then went, oh, okay, then cool. Well, if I started it where it happens, how can I tell them about the work that we do and the stuff that we do? And then why do Māori and Pacific people come and work for me? Well, it's not because they want to be partners in PwC, the largest consultants in the world. They want to learn as much as they can and take it back to their people, their co-papa driven people, their values-based people. That's their focus. On a Saturday and Sunday, that's what they do. They go back and that's the focus for them. And so if we thought about that, then we'd go, oh, so actually our recruitment should be possibly a relationship or a partnership with NATO that says, hey, you give us three people, we'll give them as much as we can. And don't worry, we'll make as much money as we can of them. And if, and then in three years, we'll give them back, just set us three more and we'll do it again. <laughs> like and, and what it will do is insanely lift up the capability and capacity of organization. It will add huge diversity and knowledge and diversity of thinking to your people and your work and you're part of a community that's helping to develop it itself, right? It's to create that thing. And I'm just using an example, but to rethink how we do those things to change, because I'm a hundred percent sure that we should have templates and processes for how we do things with recruitment and mm. learning and development and all those sort of things. But then we should sit down and go, right, how do we tailor make this for the staff that we want to bring here and what we want to achieve. Yeah. Uh, you know, my favorite answer to a question is, should we have a go at doing this? And then the answer is, we've never done that before. I'm like, excellent. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> should we do a world first? Should we do something crazy? Yeah. Like that. And I that. Like rethinking that is where we need to be to, yeah, anyway. So that's my thinking around it. So what's to say, how do you balance that stuff? Well, man, changing people is easy, right? Changing one project is easy. But man, changing your behavior of an organization for mm. a bigger cause, that's tough, man. That's what we need to lean into, right? And so it's a long job, but man, usually like long jobs take ages to feel good. The thing about doing long jobs, man, is it feels good all the time, particularly if you're interested in going, you know, when I say feel good, you know, particularly if you're hitting up against barriers, man, you have to figure out, actually, how do I get over this? How do I do this? How do I, that person's really angry with me. How do I lean into that and go, man, where do we go to next? Because that's where change comes from. It's from derision. This country yeah. was born on an argument. It's still yeah. like, you know, so why wouldn't we lean into that? And so that's why I mean, it feels good because man, change is rough and it's really it hoots a bit. So that's why it feels good. So more exciting. <laughs> I love that attitude, Ivan. And I think I share a similar philosophy for me. If there's not enough conflict 
or tension, then I'm going, oh, we're obviously not talking about the right thing. Exactly. Like we're having, not having the real conversation yet. Yeah. And I've learned that from Māori, right? Also, it's to people I work with, right, who are really scared about interacting with Māori because they're scared they're going to be told off. Mm. And I have to remind them that, oh, process, right? That's what Māori's focus on. There is a time to be told mm. off. There's a time to have a discussion. So that part when you're a poor they're wahi atu That's when people get up the God of War and they have a crack at each other. Hey, remember the seven generations ago when your grandfather jumped the fence and pinched one of our aunties? Mm. Like, you know, and do you remember when you came over and you murdered, you know, it's the time that you have a good crack at each other. And so here's the time, you know, and they even have a style for it, right? We tell a haka, I'm going to haka about this. And as soon as the haka's over, it's like, let's get into discussion. I mm. talked about this. So mm. I always say to people that, you know, the old auntie that tells you off about stuff, and trust me, I'm telling you this through experience. This like, <laughs> the first person that give you a feed, like mm. you're hungry. She be the first person that goes, he hasn't quite got that. Mm. And she's probably ripped into you about some stuff that you've done because mm. the focus is the process, right? It's not the person you've done this, you're a, you know, why did you do that? And then do you want to feed? Here's some quite mm. these part of the process, right? Yeah. I mean, there'll be issues if you do it a second time, but <laughs> you know, I just sort of think that it's, it's all right to work in that space. And I've grown up in that space. So derision and argument and people emotionally feeling that's part of the process, right? I'm used to it. And it helps me for trying to change the world, man, because nobody likes change. Mm. Well, we, we like change, but we don't like to lose the things that we hold dear. Well, I've learned it's not a fuckatoki, but almost a bit of wisdom condensed recently from someone we've been working with in Atia, which is a Māori consulting firm. And they talk about mana to mana, mahi to mahi. And so you've got to have that mana to mana, that leadership conversation where, yeah, you can have that hitting over the knuckles and the war cries. And that's where actually Māori are saying, yes, there's enough mana now in the room that then you can do the mahi to mahi work, the more operational stuff that might be needed underneath that. So that's been helpful for me to understand, oh yeah, okay, I'm in this conversation. It seems heavy. It seems intense from my worldview because as yeah as a Pakia, we we were trained not to argue about things and if people are arguing that's bad and you should run away from it that was kind of my conditioning as a young person so yeah it's really helpful to understand the different way of thinking about it in my Pacific people what we come from a tradition of challenge right some of our siblings i'll pick on the south pacific so one of there's a common demigod around the pacific, south pacific is maui right hmm. and if you really sat down and go, right, what are the characteristics of Maui? Someone who is revered by throughout the South Pacific, right? What are the characteristics? He's cheeky, right? He, like, he's cheeky, right? He just goes, you know, and will ask cheeky questions like, why does the sun move so quickly? Like, <laughs> annoying, right? <laughs> I want a way to stop that, right? And even the famous story about him pulling up the North Island, right? He wasn't invited into the committee. He hid away, right? And like, you know, his brother's annoyed that he did away, right? But, you know, on the edge of his cheekiness and fear and challenge was his greatest achievements, slowing down the sun. You know, there was a couple of screw-ups, right? But if you think about the people, the, the thing that's that is common amongst the whole South Pacific and who is revered, right, for mm -hmm. his actions, we think about his characteristics and, and then you move to someone like Captain James Cook, right? And what do you know about his family? Right. We know that Maui has brothers, we know his feats, and 
you think about their characters, you know, and I'm not saying what's real characters, but what is written about them and spoken about them, James Cook, an explorer, a gentleman, you know, solved scurvy, all that sort of, you know, this intelligence, this yeah. thing like that. In contrast to that, right, yeah. is that, you know, is Maui, cheeky, challenging. You know, there's a saying that says, Emanuel Maui, the beating heart of Maui, to hold that, yeah. right? You know, I've seen it used. Cause you know, use a lot of tangas, right? With like, I don't see the tanga, monarchy tanga, these values that hold, no, I've heard this value that I hold strong is to te manawa Maui, right? Stand with the courage of Maui, right? Mm. The courage to be brave, to be cheeky, mm. to challenge those sort of things. You know, I think there's a recent kaupapa led by a, a couple of my friends and they use the core Maui, right? Which is to hold strong to te manawa Maui, right? And so I just think, yeah, these, you can see like the differences, you can see those differences. And in that mana to mana corridor, right, which is my point here is that you can go back to the stories, the Pubako of Māori mm. and Pacific people, and you can understand a lot about some of the things that we see today. Mm. So mana to mana, right? So Māori, right? So when you're on a marae, right, and those two people are speaking, they must have equal mana. That. So when you're in a meeting in a boardroom and you are talking to someone and you send your senior analyst to talk mm. to the CEO of a Māori organisation, you can Oops. see like, well, Back in Porphyry land, right, it has to be an equal mana relationship. Mm. Think that sometimes when you make mistakes, you get told off, which is fine, right? You probably haven't listened. And when I say listen, like you have to be really attentive and, and really clear about what you're saying. I often hear that called it or, oh, women don't get the same presence on marae as men. And, mm. you know, I refer back to say, no, wait, right? Who's the first voice that you hear on the marae? Mm. Isn't a man's, right? And so, you know, so when I say be attentive, like be really attentive to what you're seeing and hearing. And when you go back to that and then you have interaction with Māori on a professional and commercial level, you start to understand why they're doing stuff, why they take time to introduce each other. So I often hear that quarter or around, you know, two to one on one. But, you know, so this is why when people ask, I'm going through this at the moment, why do we need to learn about Māori culture and just to connect with Māori and commercial stuff? Because the story, because like, it's not written down. It's not the Māori and Pacific culture is there whilst most of us. So you've mm. got to be living it. And so, you know, you know, when you go to Europe, right, you see their buildings, you see these massive libraries full of these ancient books, which I love, right? I just love all the history. So it's so cool. Like, you know, she's like, particularly loved Italians, like, because with their Roman, like, they're crazy <laughs> stuff they used to do. But you can touch it, uh, mm. you can feel it, you can read it, you know, it's on scrolls, ancient scrolls, you know, all that sort of stuff, which I love, right? But in the South Pacific, right, you sing it, eat it, you perform it, you cry. It's a different way of learning about that stuff. And so that's why I sort of say to people, the reason why you need to learn about these histories and how they do it and the tikanga and the things that happen is because that still informs Māori civic people today right? and the way that they work. They still talk about that stuff. A connection back to the processes as opposed to the people is really important. So you can recognize and you know, be really conscious when you're seeing an ancient tradition and be really conscious in how it's materializing in today's world, right? And I catch myself doing it going, oh, actually, I know where that's from. And I recognize that. And it's because of that. It's that translation and that transmitting of, of that stuff. Because I think when people say, oh, we want to hold on to the traditions of the past. Some of my young Māori Pacific people is like, no, we can't. We've got to move on. They're not saying we'll go have a porphyry every time we meet. Yeah. What they're saying is those contexts and those things and the reasons why we do those things are very important. So what does it materialize in today? And it might mm -hmm. be a kalaki at the start and a mihi at the start. 
Why not take three hours at hip IT now? But that's all right. But it's a start and a finish, you know, and those concepts and trust in those concepts. And I often say to my Pacific staff, when, when a non-Māori or a non-Pacific person asks you a question about tikanga and process, and with a genuine question, I had one today, actually, like a couple of weeks ago when they said, what is the space for people who don't um, identify as male or female in the Orphity process, right? Yeah. And, yeah, talk to my co-mato, just go, man, yeah. like, I've never thought about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, and, you know, he went back to the concept of Orphity and about why those things happen. So we want the front because it's about that spiritual space like that. And mm-hmm. men at the back because it's about actually preparing, checking for the back. Some people think about defense. Some mm-hmm. others think about actually, geez, well, women will sit at the back and it's quite easy thing to do. To mm-hmm. think about those concepts and then go, oh, and then ask them to make the choice. Where do they see themselves in the space? Do they see themselves in the spiritual wahine space? If they do, have they talked to a wahine? You know, so there's, how does that materialize in today's work? If we think about the concepts, not about, you know, like so when people say, hold on to the traditions of the past. I don't think we're talking about the, you know, hold on to the action of it, hold on to the concepts and the reasons why we do that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you think about it as a translator of this stuff, you go, Oh, yeah, because values are what underpin Māori Pacific worlds. <laughs> and so we start at those things because it's a value-based conversation. Mm-hmm. If you start at the work first, which well, not in all cases, you know, I'm just being generalistic about this thing. You know, mm-hmm. often jump to the how and the what really mm-hmm. quickly, not the why. Is that actually, you know, that you've got to focus on those things to make sure that we write down pathway. And in recent times, guys like Sullivan Sinek have have, have come in and backed that up, right? The golden circles, right? Why is yeah. it in the middle, right? Yeah. And then how and the what is after that, and right? And maybe so, even who should be in the middle yeah. even more. Who are you yeah. first before why are we here? Yeah. Yeah. And you like that with minor Pacific people, right? Yeah. Who are we is the wrong question to ask. Where are you from is the best question mm-hmm. to ask. Just mm-hmm. to go, oh, so what do they say? Instead of call way queer, ask more here. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, right? Because yeah. if you ask Pacific Islander where they're from and they sound Samoa from Savai'i and Puru, then you can really make some, oh, okay, cool. So that's where you're from, where you're born, that sort of stuff like that. And you're understanding yeah. about their journey as opposed to who are they at this time? That's not really yeah. important. Process they've got to go here, that's important. Yeah. So process of a goal every time. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ivan. I'm hearing two big things coming out from you today. One is that message of understanding the process, not the outcome that you're looking for. And that's hard sometimes because in government as well, we get trained to look at the outcome and our reporting is about outcomes and the minister's asking for outcomes, but actually we have to set that aside to think about the process, understand the history. So I'm hearing that coming through really strongly from you. And then the second thing I really heard a lot in there was looking at yourself before you come into a space with Māori and Pacific peoples. And I mean yourself both me as an individual, but also me and my team, me and my organization and understanding what are we doing that might be enabling or disabling the right kind of conversation that we need to have. And you've got to be prepared to take some hits. That's just the way it works. I've had a lot of hits in my life and that's the way. And yeah, just get up and know that you're on the right quarter. I think that's really important.
We haven't talked anything about Pacific data sovereignty. We haven't got there at all. I don't know how much time you've got, Ivan, Ivan, because it's one twenty-six. So I'll probably have to end in three minutes. But I think, yeah, I do think I want to talk about Pacific data sovereignty because we've got a big conference coming up shortly. Where I'm talking about, I've sort of set the tone of that conference to the chair. I've sort of said, how do we reclaim our money and data? I mean that sincerely because while everybody was having wars in Europe and, I don't know, civil unrest and everywhere else, in the world, we were busy circumnavigating the largest ocean in the world. And the way that we did that was we learned hundreds of star constellations and we knew their movements. We would understood the wind, where it would go. We understood the sea currents. We understood how birds reacted in open sea and in coastal land. We understood that stuff. And what we did was we collected and harvested hundreds of thousands of data points and we used those data points to Ultimately, one of our greatest achievements, the most sparsely populated of ocean in the world, yeah. which went from the jungles of Papua New Guinea to the archipelagos of Samoa, to the far reaches of the South Island. And we did that through using data. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that now it's time to reclaim our money back in that data space. Yeah. It's that we've had it for years. We just haven't been facilitated. And it's our opportunity now where we've got an untold number of Māori and Pacific enumerators and data specialists, particularly after COVID in the health space that use data as a tool to help our people. So now's our time to reclaim that space um, because we have the capability and the capacity to own and manage storage input into how it's leveraged and utilized. And I called it all from, you know, I called it from the Pacific Data Sovereignty Network is nothing about us without us. You know, to make decisions about data and how that works from right to the data journey from collection to use, right? Mm. Storage management methodologies, all that sort of stuff. Mm. I've got plenty to talk about with that space, man. Can, can I jump in with a quick question there, Ivan? And, and we might not go too much further. For people who are listening who are non Māori, non Pacific peoples, and they're an advisor and a department or something, what's the kind of trigger point for them to go, oh, okay, we need to be looking at this, having that conversation and where do they go? Who do they turn to? Yeah, I think what's the trigger point? If you take a Tiriti or Waitangi framework, right, which I think works for Pacific communities as well, right? And if you looked at that and went, oh, how many of our people, how many of my percent people and people of diversity, right, disability, women, yeah, you know, if we look at an equity lens, how many of those people involved in governance, Kalawatan, Aikawa. How many of those people are then involved in leadership, operational decisions? And then how many of those people connected have influence and drive and manage systems and processes, Oritetana, the systems and processes that confirms the rights of Māori as citizens? So if you just sat down and went, mm, and asked that question, and if the answer is none or whatever, because there's always be work to be done. And then you go, oh, okay. So then if we started off like that, then how would we make that better? You know, how could we move that? Where do we need to make so influence? So, you know, sitting back and having a look, I think, and to add to that around action, because people always go, what do we do next? What's the next thing we do? It's <laughs> that and my advice to people who are no Maori or Pacific is that I've only ever seen things work, sustainable outcomes that are led by Maori Pacific people. So in your question that you ask yourself, one of the first questions is, mm, are, are people, mm. is diverse people, is diversity of thinking in all those realms? 
the second question you ask is, how do I facilitate the excellence of my Māori Pacific colleagues? What are the things that they care about that space? If you raise that urgency, they go, oh man, there's no governance or stuff like that. And then because let them take that lead. I've seen the outcomes of when Māori Pacific people have done things done to them by really well-meaning Pākehā, really well-meaning people that have care and love for that. But I've seen the consequences of one for that individual, that is, and two for the sustainability of a really positive outcome. Yeah. And so I always say to my non-Māori Pacific staff is, yeah, so don't stand with arrogance, right? And the humility alongside your mind percent so forward, right? And use that privilege. Because I was to say, people always go, oh, I've got heaps of privilege. What do I do? Mm-hmm. And yeah, acknowledging is one thing. You know what? Mm-hmm. Giving it away is better. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what you should do, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got that privilege, and how can you give it to someone else, right? I'm privileged to be a director in PwC. Mm-hmm. Privileged. Yeah, you mentioned the word arrogance. I, I wonder if it's less arrogance and it's more an attachment to wanting to be useful. And thinking yeah. that the only way to be useful is to do that work ourselves as white people, when actually sometimes to be more useful, we have to get out of the way. And that can be, that's often a harder thing to do personally, because you have to give yeah. up that attachment to being useful. Yeah. So what my call to that is to go back to tradition. The money is handed down, right? No, not handed down, handed on. And so. The only way that you get your better, right, which is the shaman tattoo from the legs to the sort of the, the area from management. And you are given that mandate and that opportunity to get that by your people. Right? And so for my non-minor opens, for my party, our bailing colleagues, what I would say is seek the mandate mm. before doing it. Right? And if the mandate is going, oh, yeah, man, I reckon you should do it. That'd be a good idea. You do that. And that's your mandate. If it is, I'm not sure. I think we have to have a quarter rule about this. It's not mandate. Right? Mm-hmm. So if I was to go back to tradition and learn from those contexts, I'd go, oh, actually you have to be given mandate by a group of people, mm-hmm. not by, I still see it today. Actually, I see some really good examples of it. Monique Faliafar is a great example of it. Who Dr. Monique Faliafar, Samoan legend, used to be the CEO mm-hmm. of Bar, which is a mm-hmm. mental health organization in Pacific. And, uh, you know, she's a partner at PwC now, and she would always, even though she's a partner in the hierarchy sense, she always waits for mandate from the Pacific family within PwC before she says, I will, you know, I'm happy to lead that. And she's a partner. So hierarchy in the PwC world doesn't work for finance. <laughs> so yeah. So my advice to my Pākehā colleagues is seek mandate, seek the mana, seek that tattoo, seek the tattoo that you can wear <laughs> and then go. Okay. I can do that. And just remember that it's not your mana for ever. It could be taken away as swiftly as in skipping. <laughs> With aroha, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but in saying that, the piece of age of that, and this is for my Māori Pacific colleagues who are listening, is that our greatest allies are non-Māori, non-Pacific. They are our greatest weapons in this, in this battle. Because as we are translators of our people, they are translators of their people. They know their systems. It's the connection between us is the real, the chuiyat demokotanga, the sewing of human fibers. That's the connection. And I just sort of think for my Māori Pacific colleagues that like, grab that enthusiasm, grab those allies, because they will be our greatest weapons, probably not weapons, our greatest allies in this call. Hey, Ivan, I think that's a nice point to start wrapping up this call at all. And I'm really grateful 
to you for spending the time and yeah, that wasn't quite the conversation we thought we were going to have. We just jumped into what, what seemed alive in us today, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. And good opportunity, right? Because I can yabber on a bit and you know, these messages and for all those people that know me, they would have heard these messages a million times. They're going, oh, it's still going to about it. But, you know, I stick to a message, right? And that's the brand that I give, right? So I stay true to those values, right? So anybody that works with me, they'll hear that a million times. But I'm real honor, man. I hands. A real a me to you too, Paul, because this type of cordial in this podcast is really good. That the cordial that you have around this challenge and this podcast is really important. And I've got a really good mate of mine, Fessel Collins, and he's gone through. I always see a huge courage from that man because I don't have the courage to stand up in the public and do mm. what I do. I stand at the back and do all the stuff in the his thing like that. His approach, even at the darkest times, racism when he was challenged about his initial thinking around sexuality and the, and the place that it holds in church, mm. um, you know, that he's changed his thinking about that. And he might not necessarily agree, right? But what he's changed his focus is to love and understanding as opposed to aggression and, yeah, I don't know, whatever the next right, thing is. What I'm saying to you is that this vehicle here that you podcast and asking people like me to come on, openness to learning and hearing about that is, it's part of that co-op around understanding and love. You don't often hear that in the commercial world a lot, but yeah, love is where it starts from, right? And so I think that this podcast is awesome. And I can't, I've heard some of the others and I can't wait to hear more. I can't wait to people react to what I'm saying, like, because <laughs> that's that right derision. And for all your listeners out there, I don't mind that. Remember, I like a good, like. Because, you know, getting told off is how I learn, right? And so, and, and so it's, so yeah, don't, don't, um, don't be backwards and coming forwards with a challenge. Yeah. Well, let's put a challenge out there to people who have got to the end of this podcast. They're still listening. What could they do, Ivan, to share what they've loved with you or what's challenged them in this conversation? Yeah, totally, man. I don't know. I don't have a platform for that sort of stuff like that. Yeah. Me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm open to people to come in and talk to me about this stuff because, you know, it's not like people have tried to change a country into Māori Pacific and Polynesian ways before. Like it's, we're still on, we're still doing it. And yeah. so like, so it's learning and understanding what's happening on the ground is like a really good way to go. Oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Right. So yeah, I'm open to people talk to me or perhaps going through you, Paul, to connect with me, you know, might change your podcast to a conversation mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just the interview, but you know, I'm happy to be part of those things because like I say, it's built up from my experience and what I know, and I know that other people have different experiences and so I'm always open to hearing around that cordon, but to te mano Maui, you mean? <laughs> Courage, conviction, have a crack. To te mano Maui. I, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Thanks, Ivan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. 
ngā mihi mō te whakaronga.